0: Hello and welcome to the latest episode of the Read All About It podcast and I'm delighted to be joined in this episode by Kirsten Innes who is a novelist and a journalist. Kirsten works as a journalist in freelance arts PR when she's not writing and for a number of publications including The List, The Scotsman, The Herald, The Independent and The Pool. Well she's also worked for a number of excellent organisations. She's also performed at various spoken word nights and festivals well, she founded, programmed and presented the literary cabaret night, Words Per Minute, which ran between 2010 and 2014. The following year, Kirsten's first novel, Fishnet, was published to great acclaim and it won the Guardian, not the Booker Prize that year. Her second novel, Scabby Queen, came out in July this year and has already garnered plenty of well-deserved praise from readers and critics alike. Kirsten, thanks for joining me on the Read All About It podcast. Well,
1: thanks for having me.
0: Now, I have to say, this is a, a first for me because it's the first time I've actually been interviewing one of the guests as I'm reading their book.
1: <laughs> oh, that's weird. <laughs> so,
0: and, and just to, although this is only going to come out as audio, just to prove, I actually do, I do have a copy. Yeah,
1: it's holding it. Oh, it's signed as well.
0: It is signed. It just says, Kirsten, hello. So there you are. Um, is it,
1: oh, sorry. That was probably, I did 750 of them in one night. So that was probably around about two o'clock in the morning. when. That's impressive.
0: Um, but I'm, I'm about uh, a third of the way through and, and really loving the book So what I was going to, you know Obviously in the course of the podcast We'll chat about your, your various book choices But in terms of uh, Scabby Queen that's just coming out I said it's already got a lot of praise From readers and critics alike The first thing I wanted to ask was What was it like when you, when you suddenly Check your phone and The First Minister of Scotland is busy tweeting About how much she loves your book
1: <laughs> she, she private messaged me first um she private messaged me like three days before to say that she was reading it um and she'd started following me on Twitter um two days before that which was the day that the Scotsman had done a big write-up of it but yeah I was just kind of I just kind of walked through holding my my laptop screen and I was like showing this to my partner like look at this look at this it's just kind of um I mean the wee pretendy people that you make up in your head and make talk to each other and then the people who are kind of appearing on your television screen on a daily basis, kind of narrating a pandemic to you as well. For the, for those two worlds to collide, that was pretty surreal for a start, but um, yeah, no, it was, it was, that was awesome. Also, um, I think it's really, it's really good that she's, um, she, she kind of said, private messaged me that um, she was reading kind of the books to sort of, as her kind of escapism from all the, the work of the pandemic. Cause I mean, I don't think she's had a day off since March. Um, and I think, that's, I think that's really encouraging, actually. I think it's, um, it shows somebody who can empathise, for sure. If, if you're kind of switching off by, by reading books, I think that's important. And also it's important that people in that sort of position are switching off at some point and taking some time for self-care because they can't be machines. But yeah, that was, that was amazing. <laughs> that, was, um, that was proper strange. And she really, she could kind of open up her own book club Afterwards, I mean, my book shot up the Amazon charts. It hadn't even come out and she
0: tweeted about it and it shot up the Amazon charts for that week, which was pretty, pretty impressive. You know that way as uh, readers, and, and obviously you as a writer, to have someone that, you know, obviously she's, she's praising your book, but she is so supportive of Scottish writers, but also just, I think, just as a, a role model for people who want to read that, you know, I think it's great that a politician, as you say, has been able to switch off, but is... It's so positive about books and the power of books and the power of reading.
1: Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah, I mean I think it was Val McDermott who was interviewed last week saying that she thinks that readers make the best leaders. And, and I think that's true. But yeah, also just to, to kind of be continually flying the flag so genuinely as well for, for Scottish writing is, is is a pretty a pretty wonderful
0: thing. I mean in terms of the book itself Obviously, that's a, that's a pretty high-profile praise, but you must. Because I'm, I'm imagining there's that trepidation. You've put so much into the book, but until it actually comes out and people start reading it, you're never sure until you get the reaction. But you must be delighted at the reaction that, that you are getting for Scabby Queen.
1: Yeah, it's been pretty pretty wonderful actually. Um, the the press reviews have been universally praising. The reader reviews, Um there have been some some negative and some positive as well. Um, but you know that's. You wouldn't really expect anything anything less. But people are getting in touch with me. So many people are getting in touch with me on all the social media and email, just kind of saying wonderful things and saying that it's moved them in some way. And that that means a lot. I'm completely in awe of anybody who can read anything right now. And seeing as most people seem to be making their way through a 400 plus page book in two weeks in the middle of a pandemic, I'm pretty impressed with them. Because
0: so. you know sometimes as well, that when you, when you come to a book that has got so much praise and so much universal praise you come with it with such expectations and you hope you know as a reader i'm talking about myself you come and you hope it lives up to the expectations because then you're never quite sure if it's some of the hype so when i started reading it and immediately from the first chapter in you're just and i love the way it just switches from character to character but telling that story and so i think you're immediately you're just immediately in the book
1: there was one um, reviewer on. Oh, she was on Amazon first of all, and then she followed me around to Waterstones as well. And she left a one-star review, and she said she got to page twenty-six, and she was disgusted because um, she did actually say "disgusted," and I hated it. Um, but she only read to page twenty-six because it just mm-hmm. jumped around between so many different narrative voices. I was thinking, page twenty-six, you've only had two narrators in there. It's, um, yeah, something <laughs> <laughs> wasn't for you, pal. <laughs> uh-huh. But no, that's lovely to hear. I should stop saying the negative
0: things, really, shouldn't I? I should say the positive. <laughs> yeah. Also, I, I always remember speaking to, to a guy, Martin Gregg, who runs a, a publishing company, Backpage Press. They do a lot of sports books. And he always, when he checks the Amazon reviews, he, he always says the five star are there also obviously gushing with praise. But the one star, he says, there's nothing you can learn from them because a, a lot of that where they've barely read it. And he said, the ones in the middle, that's when you get some interesting. Interest and yeah. criticism. Um, mm-hmm. So I think if somebody's left a one star, then listen, just you just say, well, i have bought the book anyway, so I'm okay with that. Well,
1: I got, I got that. I got that, I'm fine. <laughs> I'm totally <laughs> fine with
0: that. <laughs> exactly. I mean, we'll talk uh, more about the, the novel in the course of the, the podcast. Because um, I actually think that idea of the different, you know, the different characters, the different voices, apart from the fact that imagine the challenge of that as a writer, because you're having to draw so many different characters. But that, I think, is... That's such an appealing thing for a reader.
1: Definitely, as for me, I've I've always gravitated towards books that have got interwoven stories and different different point differentiating points of view. And I'm not usually so much of a fan of, despite my first book pretty much being like that. I'm not really as much of a fan of where you follow one character's story all the way through. You're in, inside one character's catch, catcher in the rye sort of thing. Um, where you're inside the one character's head all the time, I often find that a bit claustrophobic. I like to come out and see the kind of the 360 degrees on other people's points of view and the way that the way that you get those little kind of intercuts. I think that's the interesting bit of, of fiction that you can jump in and out of different people's heads and kind of get a, a more rounded
0: picture. Well, it certainly, it certainly works in the Scabby Queen. So, um, so 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 far so good for me. So <laughs> I'll not be following you around to Waterstones to give you a one star review. <laughs> Now in terms of, it, as I say in the podcast, what I just like to do is take people on their, their own literary journey and do you know what I found actually with a lot of the episodes, I kind of feel that I've always, I'm almost having to start with an apology for having to put you through this agony of having to try and choose just one book from each of the categories because I, I know it's an impossibility even, and, and you've kind of whittled it down to a couple for each yeah, category and even then like, I know.
1: Apologise.
0: <laughs> no listen, There's no there's no rules in this podcast so you're okay but. I know how difficult that is, because how do you choose your your favourite book from childhood or a book you'd recommend to anyone? Because there's so many.
1: Yeah, there really,
0: really are.
1: But um, it's, it's, it's good to be kind of disciplined and think about it a little bit even though I didn't quite manage the discipline bit sorry
0: no listen it's fine because because one of the guests I think probably listed about three times as many books and then I'll and actually as we were doing the podcast I thought the will be other guests who listen to this and go well I managed to get it down to one for each category how's she gonna <laughs> <like> the <category?" laughs> there's no rules so you haven't broken anything but in terms of the, the first category, it's your favourite book from childhood. So there was two books that you chose, chosen. One was Little Women by Louisa May Alcott and then Anne of Green Gables by L.M. Montgomery. In terms of Little Women, what, what was it that about, about that book, first of all? They're kind of quite cliched choices in
1: terms of books that made an impact, but I think they're there for reasons. Both of them, I'll talk about kind of both of them together. Both of them are about, they've both got protagonists who live a lot in their imagination, which is what I was doing. I was, I was a big fan of a. Tragic victorian/ slash Edwardian story about girls struggling against adversity when, when I was when I was a kid, and both of those kind of fit that, that mold, but they' both they're both protagonists who use their imagination, young female protagonists, write and dream and read a lot, and kind of create additional worlds around the ones that they're, they're living in. So I think both of those things really appealed to me as, as, a, as a kid little women as well I always wanted sisters and I didn't have any sisters and I had, I had a younger brother but he was not so interested in dressing up and being in my plays as much as I, I tried to make him <laughs> <laughs> yeah and uh, I, I don't know I really like the depiction of kind of female community there as well and little women and of Green Gables I just kind of took to it because I don't know if you can see it on the Zoom, but I'm a very very freckled person and Anna Green Gables is beset by her freckles and she hates them um so I kind of bonded I kind of empathised with her there <laughs> at first but yeah it's really it's um young girls growing into young women who don't kind of settle down and don't kind of well do them in the end both Jo and Anna of Green Gables but um it's the power of the imagination it's the reading a lot and writing a lot and kind of transforming the world with their imaginations that both of them do so yeah that's that's what did it for
0: me. I mean, in terms of Little Women, for example, have you, have you ever come back to that book again and, and read it as an adult and, and what was your experience of that?
1: Yeah, I have. Um, not for a while. Not for a while. I've seen the, the films more recently, but I mean, I have read, when was the last time I read Little Women? I think I was maybe in my 20s. I'm now about to turn 40. I had seen the film very recently, um, but I read these books over and over and over again so much. I've, I've always been a very fast reader until the last couple of years I'm also a a big rereader so um I know these these kind of texts inside out going back to little women now it holds up in a way that some of the some of the books and films that I loved as a kid and a young adult didn't necessarily Anne of Green Gables I haven't returned to as recently but um my partner and I 10 years ago had a not getting married party and went off on a not honeymoon, um, and <laughs> um, we decided we were going to um, do a swap of books that had been really important to us, um, kind of in our prepubescent to teen years. So he read Anne of Green Gables and I read um, Clive Barker's Magica, um, <laughs> and then we had long in-depth conversations about that.
0: Because <laughs> <laughs> one of the things when I was, when you'd sent me through the list, and, and particularly with, I remember one of my sisters reading Anne of Green Gables and just loving that when she was younger. But in terms of Little Woman, and, and I've never read the book, and I think probably when I was younger, the idea of me picking up a book called L- Little Woman—yeah,
1: there's nothing in that title for years.
0: <laughs> yeah, but I was curious to think, should I, is it the sort of book I should read now, just to, you know, to see... Because obviously it's a book that, you know, a lot of people will quote from when they were younger and read. Obviously the title would have put, I'd say, most boys of uh, venture into its pages...
1: I'm, try, I'm trying to think if it's a I don't know I'm, I'm trying to nudge my partner to read it he says he's going to come and see the film the Greta Gerwig film is really really great actually what it does with it is this um, the
0: one with uh, Saoirse Ronan in it
1: yeah, yeah yeah and what it does is it kind of creates a, a meta narrative I'm not totally sure I'm using that term right <laughs> but it kind of it builds, it, it, it kind of plays with narrative bouncing back and forth it doesn't just present the story straight and it does that really really well i think really really skillfully it's a very good piece of writing and adaptation and um, so that might be a fairly decent entry point actually it's it's definitely i was a big little woman fan i've seen most of the film adaptations and that's head and shoulders above them
0: so maybe maybe start with the film and see how i got on with that because <laughs> i think i mean not i think Alan Green Gables as well was i remember again it was a tv series uh-huh. I'm sure, it was the seventies or eighties that. Eighties it was. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Again, I remember my sister watching that religiously, um, but I've never, I've never ventured into Anna Green Gables either. That's
1: well, kind of the beginnings of the where they segregate, yes, Anna Green Gables versus well, Clive Barker's and Magica. Um.
0: <laughs> <laughs> but it's funny. I always feel you know that way. It's probably more so when you're younger because you're you're maybe more self conscious of you know say your friends. You find out what you're reading, but I think as an adult, I never like books that are labelled particularly by gender of this is a book for women this is a book for men I just think there's books that you like reading and there's books that you don't and it doesn't shouldn't that that should be the start and the end point of it.
1: Absolutely absolutely but I mean I suppose it was just kind of that, that was sort of when was the whole chick lit and lad lit things that sort of late 90s early noughties kind of right yeah. about the Jones rise wasn't it I suppose what people were getting worried about readership dropping off and they tried to market them (laughs) however however possible and then there was that weird period kind of about 10 years ago where every single book cover had a woman with her head you know that they'd read somewhere that men weren't reading fiction anymore and they had to appeal to the middle-aged lady market and <laughs> every single book cover had a woman with her back to the, the cover so that the reader could project herself onto a pastel landscape yeah I don't know and I think now they've kind of realized that the people who are buying books are people who love books so they've gone really kind of the covers are beautiful these days aren't they sorry that's a really random <laughs> tangent there.
0: Um, no, no, it's true because I'm I'm a big believer in people judging a book by its cover. Because mm-hmm. when you go into a bookshop and you think of all the books that are there on the shelves or on tables, you need a book cover that jumps out at you. You know, even yeah. before you look at the title and you, and you look at the synopsis in the back page.
1: Mm-hmm. Absolutely, yeah.
0: Did you have a quite a lot of in terms of your own book cover for Scabby Queen? Was that quite a a process where you were quite heavily involved in that?
1: Not really. Um, they sent me to they sent me a first draft. And I felt that the kind of the sort of abstracted female face on it was a bit too passive looking to kind of represent Cleo. And then they sent me that draft and boom, pink and orange. And kind of uh, what I like about it is its the lettering is kind of grungy. It's like a sort of like a sort of zine that you would whip up in a Brixton squat in the 90s, which uh-huh. <laughs> actually happens uh-huh. So yeah, that's that's what I really love about, about that book cover. Yeah. yeah. But I mean, this is, I had a bit more input in my first Books first cover, and then, but that was a that was a very very small publisher. Then, when that got republished by a slightly bigger publisher, they kind of said, yeah, "You can have this one or this one, basically." <laughs> this one you think, and then it got republished in America, and they were just like, "Hi, here's the cover."
0: There was a scabby queen, I think, when you walk into the bookshop, it's like you you're right; it's those bold colours that says, "Here, here,
1: read me." I know, I know, it's like neon pink and neon orange; it just jumps out. It's awesome.
0: Yeah, that's great. <laughs> I mean, that is that's what you want.
1: Yeah, that is a a designer called Jack Flagg, by the way, who is amazing. And I think he's only about 28 or something. And he's kind of already winning all these book cover awards. And yeah, he's freelance and he's really, really good. Um, I don't know who would kind of look, how you would look up a designer's work, but I've seen the other things he's done and he's he's really does awesome stuff.
0: I suppose even though you're not, you maybe don't get a a decision and it's still your book. So you still want it to be something that that you like as well.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, the first the first ever proposed cover for my first book, Fishnet, kind of took me by surprise a bit because, yeah, I was, I was quite... Yeah. <laughs> I like to say that I'm very easygoing to be a person to publish and, and work with, but on, on that particular point of that first cover, I wasn't, and I'm okay. quite proud of that.
0: In terms of the, the, the book choices for the podcast, we're on to mm-hmm. the second question, and that's kind of favourite book from your, your formative teenage student years. And again... You've chosen two books here. One mm-hmm. is the, the Trick is to Keep Breathing by Janice Galloway and the other one is The Prime of Miss Jean Brodie by Muriel Spark.
1: Yes, I read Brodie first, actually. Um, I was going to say, oh, well, yes, I read The Trick is to Keep Breathing first. It was Brodie I read first. I read it in the spare room of my uncle's um, house when I was staying over there when I was about 13 or 14 and I just found it and it had... Um, a picture of schoolgirls on the front cover so I thought this is obviously for me. I was possibly a wee bit young for it at the time but it definitely kind of lodged with me. Um the trick is to keep reading I read when I was 16, first of all. I was really, really lucky in that as I was kind of putting away the the kind of the teenage books and getting interested in adult books, it kind of coincided with this massive flourishing in contemporary Scottish writing. So I was 13 when train spotting came out and then after train spotting everybody wanted to be publishing Scottish writers. So as I was kind of late teens, I mean Janice Galloway, the trick is to keep breathing was already out. But um, yeah, um, Ali Smith, A.L. Kennedy, you know, Alistair Gray getting preprinted and my mum was bringing all these books into the house and I was just devouring them. Um, but the trick is to keep breathing really, really stuck with me at the time because I was a very dramatic, slightly depressed, probably for not much of a reason. 16 year old and I the angst appealed to me, but I keep coming back to that one again and again and what it what it does that's so amazing is it makes ordinary the kind of very quotidian ordinariness of, of women's lives this sort of I mean, she makes kind of high art out of um, laying out an arrangement of biscuits to show your social worker that you're normal or you're, you're kind of you're Saturday, getting felt up by your boss in your Saturday job in the bookies this kind of thing and also this sort of this taking on board of depression and kind of articulating it from a kind of disenfranchised working middle class women's point of view um, she's a working class woman who's kind of working as a, as a drama teacher she's kind of the first of her family to go to, to university I think and um, yeah it's, it's just it's a complete explosion on the page as well, you know I mean she just shunts the the words and the phrases around into the margins, kind of express how she's feeling when actual normal sentence structure won't, won't do, it's, it's kind of it's sort of this avant-garde places as well it's kind of and that, that she's using such quotidian subject matter to do that I, just, I still think it's extraordinary um so yeah that is a book I, re- I reread all the time and it's it's really really stuck with me and it was the, the thing that I've always taken from it is that the the tiny tiny little pieces of life can be you know um, expressed can be that sort of important to understanding your character understanding your person
0: and other people really because okay. one of the one of the previous guests on the podcast she'd actually chosen i think it was one of part one of janice galloway's memoirs as as one of her favorite books and then said just from that book it's amazing to see what she came through to become this extraordinary writer she said it was fascinating because it was kind of like giving an insight into her as a person as a writer and then obviously she knows her novels etc
1: i absolutely adore janice galloway At first um interviewed her when I was working as a journalist at the List magazine when This Is Not About Me came out, which I think must have been 13 years ago. I think it was about 2000, no, maybe 2008, 2009, something like that. And I was incredibly nervous. (laughs) And uh, Grant, her publisher, got her a big room at the the Scotsman Hotel in Edinburgh. And she was seated right at the end of this immensely grand hall with all these kind of weird pornographic coffee tables around her. And you had to sort of approach her like you were approaching the Queen up the centre of the room. But since then, I've kind of met her more as a writer, and then we both did a lot of for Muriel Spark's centenary. We both did a lot of events together because we're both deep steeped in Muriel Spark. And since then, she's become a friend, and and it's wonderful. I get these lovely emails from her. She knitted my my littlest child a, a teddy bear, and uh, yeah, I got to I got to guest program a slot at the first the first ever a, a strand of the first ever Paisley Book Festival in February, and um, I got to have Janice on, and I got to fill this you know the whole of Paisley Arts Centre with Janice Galloway fans who were just overjoyed to meet her. And I think she was kind of, she was, she was a bit sort of confused as to why people would still want to be coming and hearing from her. And I, I think I resisted saying, because you're an actual queen.
0: Because <laughs> <laughs> that must be really nice. As you say, you you start off, you only know her through her words, through her books, mm-hmm. but that that evolves through your professional life. Yeah. And then it, and then it takes it into your personal life where you, you develop this friendship, which again is just... Obviously, it must be a great side effect of of the work that you've done.
1: Yeah, it's um, it's it's kind of it's wonderful. She's actually coming round for um, for tea to see to see my wee boys on Thursday afternoon. I, I can't quite get my head around it still, to be honest. I think if you know, there's there's a few things I'd want to zoom back in time and let me wee sixteen year old me in 1996, <laughs> go, and that's definitely one of them.
0: I mean, in terms of when you look back to either from your, your childhood or even your, when you're moving into those kind of teenage formative years. Was there always something that, as well as being obviously a reader, was there always that spark of wanting to to put your own words down on the page? And were you doing that at the time? Yeah,
1: yeah, always. I've always, always, always been a writer. When my grandma died, my mum found all these stories that I'd, because I used to, my mum's a single mum and we would kind of be round at my grandma's quite a lot after school and my grandma had her old typewriter that she used to thunder off disapproving letters to the local Labour Party. And um, yeah, I would, from about seven or eight, I was sitting there on this typewriter trying to write these stories, kind of illustrate them. I've always written, it took me till I was about 28 to show anybody
0: any of these stories but I have always been writing stories. Cause that's quite a nice thing, if you've kept them. Because I used to always say, because I was always like that, I always wrote stories when I, when I was a wee boy, and I, I've always joked with my mum that she should have kept them on the off chance that I became really famous, and then she could put them on eBay and make some money out of me. But, you know, to have that kind of tangible link back to, to when that, that first started for you, that's a, that's a really brilliant thing to have.
1: Yeah, it's, um, yeah, it's nice. It's, it's pretty wonderful. My mum says that, when again, when I was about eight, she said that I would, um, when people asked me what I wanted to be, I said um, I wanted to be a teacher in the daytime, a nurse, uh, the even- and nurse uh, at the weekends, a ballerina in the evenings, and write books in my spare time. So, um, <laughs> <laughs> I'm day four, so I'm all right.
0: <laughs> See, that, that's impressive. One of my daughters, when she was wee, and I think her gran had asked her what she wanted to be when she grew up, and she said she wanted to be a bin man because they only worked one day a week. <laughs> You're you're listening to the Read All About It podcast with me, Paul Cuddy, and Kirsten Innes. And Kirsten, we're on to the third question, and that is a book that you'd recommend to anyone. And again, there's a couple of choices here. The first is Lowborn by Kerry Hudson, and the other one is The Panopticon by Jenny Fagan.
1: Lowborn, um, I read a couple of years ago, it's only, it's only been out for a couple of years, um, I read it just before it came out. I've met Kerry once, um, I think we were both doing something for some reason, I think it was Stirling University, some sort of writer's thing, I'm not totally sure. Um, and we've kind of chatted on social media a wee bit. Yeah, so Lowborn was sent to me and I think it was Kerry and I, I think we were born in the same month of 1980 in Scotland. And what really, really hit me was that I recognised the pop culture structure. It's oh, sorry, it's a it's a memoir. It's it's her memoir of her of growing up. And I recognised the pop culture structure, the ephemera that surrounded her, Kylie Minogue, slap wrist bracelets, um, push pop lollipops, this sort of thing. But apart from that, you know, I had a fairly comfortable, you know, just unsettled upbringing. And Carrie was kind of growing up in the well, lowborn subtitle. I think is growing up in. Do you know what? I've got it right here by the bed because I'm trying to get my partner to read it just um, <laughs> Growing Up, Getting Away and Returning to Britain's poorest towns. It's absolutely extraordinary, that book. It's um it's really it's something that I, I think everybody needs to read. It's not necessarily a joyful or uplifting read, but my God bless her, you really get a sense of her grit and her humour coming through and her beautiful kind of empathy and compassion as well um, she really does kind of there's you know she's come through some horrific stuff and there's no kind of bitterness in there she kind of embarks on this as a as an inquiry as a quest um, but also as a kind of socio-political piece of writing where she goes back to all these towns her mother had her when she was very young and kind of brought her from boyfriend to boyfriend you know all over it started out in Aberdeen but then all over kind of the whole of the UK she was kind of moving from moving schools sometimes every year, and so what she does is she goes back to each of these towns and looks at them now, and she she walks around the the schemes that she lived in and, and the places that she grew up. It's an extraordinary thing. I mean, you can tell that it really would have taken its toll emotionally on her to write it. You can you can tell that from the from the book itself, but it's it's so good that she's done it, and um, it's it's just yeah, it's it's beautiful writing that you lose yourself in whilst also being awakened, kind of shocked out of a lot of complacency. So yeah, that's that's the one that's the main one that I buy for people for presents at the moment. But I also buy The Panopticon by Jenny Fagan, which is another absolutely mind blowing piece of writing by <laughs> another female Scottish writer of my generation, pretty much the same age as me. Have you have you read the the Panoptican? Do you know that one now?
0: No, I haven't I haven't I haven't read it. You're about the second or third person on the podcast that's recommended it.
1: It's brilliant. It's like um just kind of amazing weird gothic fiction so it, again it's it's about a girl this is this is fiction it's about a girl called Aeneas who has grown up in the care system since she was born she's she's no idea who her family is really she's been she was fostered at one point by a sex worker who's been killed you know and, and she and the other kids in the care system are taking drugs and just you know getting in trouble with the police so it sounds very kind of gritty realist but what Aeneas has got which is kind of bringing us back to Little Women and Anna Green Gables, I guess, is she's got an imagination that completely transforms everything around her. So it's this amazing work of kind of magical, realist, gothic, dark, beautiful stuff. She rides off on a gargoyle at one point, all set in an East Lothian care home, or kind of nominally set in an East Lothian care home. Yeah, and it's it's wonderful. Um, Jenny adapted it herself for the National Theatre of Scotland last year, the year before. Honestly, this whole pandemic's completely screwed up my sense of time <laughs> and, and yeah, again, lemon extraordinary bit of work. So yeah, those are those are my two that I get for for everybody and anybody.
0: Lowborn came out as a paperback quite recently. So yeah, I've got it in on my pile of books to read. Because I've read I read a novel that Tony Hogan bought me an ice cream float and then before he stole my ma, which I thought was brilliant, mm-hmm. even just for the title alone. I think oh. you'd be obliged to read it. But I'm I'm really looking forward to, to reading Low Born.
1: Yeah, it's not it's not a slog. Sometimes you get that sort of... There, there was a real trend after Angela's Ashes came out, wasn't there, for sort of My Terrible Life kind of... Yeah, and it's, it's not a slog, this one. It's, it's just a beautiful, beautiful work. It's a genuinely empathetic and interesting sociological experimentation. Did, does that make sense? Yeah. <laughs> Do
0: you know I I always admire? Because I, I just finished reading um, Catherine Simpson's memoir when oh, I yeah. had a little mm-hmm. sister. And... And again, I'm, I'm guessing it'll be the same thing with Kerry's But What I admire about people who, there's a real element of courage in your writing, when mm. you're writing a memoir, because you're you're kind of bearing your soul to the public. And that, I'd, I'd imagine thats that takes a lot for people to, mm. you, you kind of touched on, the fact that it must have taken a lot out of her, just in terms of putting that down on, on the page.
1: Have you seen I May Destroy You, which is the BBC series, which just aired by Michaela Cole?
0: No, I've, um, I've not seen it yet, no.
1: She's a TV writer and um, she stood up at the Edinburgh Television Festival, I think, in 2018 and spoke about how she'd been sexually assaulted and then kind of asked to kind of carry on working and kind of pushed into bringing that into her work a bit. And this piece is her kind of response to all of that. So it's another kind of interesting use of kind Of real life trauma in, in that way, and that chimes in with what they're doing. But I think there's there's a duty of care that people sometimes maybe forget if you're asking somebody to stand up there and basically bear their soul and their childhood trauma, you know, whether it's in print or, or not. You know, you get a sense in Lowborn of, of Kerry feeling the pressure of the deadline and feeling the pressure of, of writing this book, and it's, it kind of makes you wonder about how much we're asking people to sort of bear of their souls increasingly kind of nowadays for for entertainment yeah so the book that you couldn't pay me to read again which does it it does feel a wee bit harsh I'm a freelance writer. I will pretty much read anything that you pay me to read (laughs) (laughs) but um I'm probably not going to return to normal people by Sally Rooney I feel I'm I'm not a big fan of people who do these great big takedowns I just I just possibly I just didn't get it I kind of feel like I should have got it um I'm not so far out of
0: the target demographic, I don't know. Have you have you read it? Paul, this one. Do you know? what, I, I did read it actually, but again, I, and I would definitely not be in this, I suppose that kind of demographic. And it was when the TV series was on, mm-hmm. and my wife Sorry. was watching it, and I didn't really watch it, but I actually couldn't remember a single thing that I had read in the book. It just it was one of the, you know like sometimes you read a book, and some books make a lasting impression on you, and some mm-hmm. don't. And I think it was just one of those ones that I read, but then it just I, I just moved on
1: yeah I just I just kind of felt like I don't know I, I, I read it after all the hype and I came to it expecting something really exciting and I kept on trying and trying and trying and I finished it and I just I, it just felt like a very slight story I don't know maybe I, I, I just maybe it's just me maybe I just don't i you know I'm, I'm, I'm just too old to find the <laughs> the sex lives of university students that interesting anymore I mean my sex life was not that interesting when I was a
0: university student. So maybe it's jealousy. That's okay. <laughs> <laughs> because there was a big uh, there was a big hype about the TV. Because I think the TV series I don't know if that just came right at the start of the lockdown or because there seemed to be again there was loads of interest and people talking about how great this was and I, I, I just never bothered watching it.
1: I got three episodes in and I, again I was really really trying. I don't I don't hate it. I just I just don't don't get it. I, I'm just looking for something else there doesn't seem to be anything else in there it's just it's just seems very much surface level it's well written um I believe in those characters but yeah I don't know just kind of (laughs) I just don't get the hype I
0: just don't. Well that's the thing about you know books even books that seem to garner universal acclaim or or ones everybody seems to like you know it's such a subjective thing that people like you know if you don't you don't
1: yeah, absolutely. I feel I feel bad about that. The, the other book that I said, though, was um, Enduring Love by Ian McEwan. No, you could not pay me to read that one again. Just absolutely bloodless. It kind of permeates all of Ian McEwan's stuff and all of his kind of contemporaries like Martin Amis and that stiff upper lip. It's so boring. <laughs> that, that one's the worst, but Amsterdam's pretty bad as well. I don't know why. I think this was me as an English student. Thinking that I had to be reading me in the queue and I needed to understand all of this, but yeah, just that kind of clipped, stiff stuff—not, not, not for me. Yeah,
0: because I, I have not, I haven't read it. I kind of read the synopsis just ahead of the, this recording, and it didn't really spark my my enthusiasm.
1: But there just seemed to be a time when Ian McEwan was like, your, he was what a novelist was. As far as people were, were sort of concerned, you know, he was, he, that was what a novelist was, was Ian McEwan. And that's what you got in a novel. I remember somebody saying, no idea where, I'm never going to pick up another middle class novel of adultery. And, <laughs> and that's, to just kind of sum it up for me. Just kind of, yeah, I think I'm more, I'm more interested in books that are looking at things happening in the world a bit more, I guess.
0: I mean, you, you mentioned obviously that he he did win the Booker Prize. I think it was for Amsterdam, actually. And, but I had mentioned in the introduction that you didn't win the Booker Prize, but you won the Guardian, not the Booker Prize, which it's a pretty big thing, you know. It's it, particularly obviously it was your first novel. Well, obviously, they're playing on it with the not the Booker idea, but it, it's become a big thing in terms of literature and, and novels. So it, you must have been absolutely thrilled to win that.
1: I was. Um, that was it. Was quite stressful because it's public voting. So you have to be continually like, I found I was writing emails to people who had said they'd like the book or like, and just saying, hi, could you vote for me? Could you? <laughs> it's horrible. It's horrible. But It's not just public voting. They've got a jury as well. So the public vote half and then the jury votes come in and they do the jury voting live via Zoom, actually, even in 2015, they were doing oh, wow. probably YouTube there, but um, then you get a mug you get a guardian mug but no that was was a wonderful thing for me that really kind of set me off that made my career I remember my book my first book coming out and you know you think when you're writing you think oh this is it I get my book published that's it that's me made and then two months later thinking I think that might be it but yeah so the the guardian and the Booker Prize really made me and it was it kind of found me readers I was kind of to I didn't have kids at the time, so I was touring up and down the country. I did in performance slots anywhere, Brixton, Manchester, Leeds, all over the place, Belfast, just trying to like get my book physically into as many people's hands as possible. And then yeah, that came along and then from there, broadsheets were kind of taking me seriously. I hadn't my book hadn't been broadsheet reviewed before. And yeah, that seemed to sort of really kind of boost it. It's, it's amazing how these things work. It doesn't feel like it's enough to just write a good book anymore. You've got to write a good book that makes a shortlist or makes a prize or gets noticed in some way to get on the, I
0: don't know. <laughs> Would well, do you know, it's difficult. And I wonder whether this year, because obviously this year has been, for a whole variety of reasons, but certainly in publishing, it's been, you know, it's had such an impact. But I think the other day, the, the Guardian from when we were recording was reporting that, is it In September, there's going to be something like 600 books being published in the same day, and, and I feel really sorry because obviously there's going to be lots of big name celebrity memoirs will get all the publicity. You think of there's going to be loads of really really good novels by you know maybe first time novelists or people who are just their second or third book, and it'll get lost in the in the noise.
1: It's kind of weird actually because because my my book was was held off, so I understand why why they're doing it from a they can't actually fit they couldn't actually physically get the copies yeah. out in the warehouses during Covid because yeah people were saying well could you not just could you not just launch it it'll be fine but um yeah no, they can't actually physically get the copies out I think Gabriel Krause who they was who's he's on my publisher and he's on the, the booker long list and they've um they've published his book as an ebook in advance kind of done that just to kind of jump over the third of September date but yes yeah, it's, it's um it's really intense it's it's kind of it just seems so strange that there are just these kind of still these sort of set ways of getting a book seen by people but they are changing I mean Bookstagram and Booktube are, are big big things now that I've had very patient publishing marketing people explain to me <laughs> um, about how um people going on YouTube to talk about I'm not a big fan of watching streaming um so I don't watch them very often but yeah apparently people going on YouTube to talk about the books they've read and just kind of sit in their living room and hold them up has been has been big for a while and taking beautiful shots of your book covers and that sort of thing is big on Instagram
0: no because I just feel that, you know like as a reader as well that again with 600 books coming out at the same time there's not space in all the bookshops for all those mm-hmm. books so I, I, there's probably some wonderful books that we're going to miss out on because you know they maybe just not are as big a you know his name is they, they, they just they don't get the attention they deserve
1: yeah i really feel for those um first-time writers actually because i remember that slump i remember the excitement and the slump <laughs> and I mean, you honestly do think that this is it when you get your publishing deal this is this is my this is my big chance this is my big breakthrough this is it happening but yeah i really 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 do feel for these these authors Six 600 in one day
0: i know it's yeah. extraordinary
1: yeah and the fact is as well that there's been all these you know, everybody's kind of aware of it. There's been all these articles about it and that's just going to be like air slowly seeping out of their balloons. And like you said, as readers as well, we're losing the chance to experience
0: some totally wonderful books
1: that must be brilliant to have had,
0: you know, yeah. publishers that reading them in the first place. In the last year or so, I stumbled upon a really good magazine called Strong Words, a magazine that basically just reviews books, basically a one-man show, a guy called Ed Needham. I think he used to be a journalist. So he he does all the reviews. I think he designs the magazine, he edits it. It comes out, maybe there's nine or 10 episodes a year, and he's got you know new hardback books, new fiction books, crime books, graphic novels, non-fiction books. And it's just, by the time you finish reading it, you think, oh, I'm going to have to buy about another dozen books. It's a really good platform platform. To kind of try and promote books, and it's you know for anybody who loves uh, books, and loves reading, it's a really good magazine. Is
1: it is it kind of hard copy magazine or? Yeah,
0: yeah. You just I just subscribed online, so no, it's well worth it's well worth reading. In terms of we're on to the last question in the podcast, and that is either the last book that you read or the book that you're currently reading. Um, again, you've you've mentioned a few, but you also kind of touched on just a chat, which I think probably a lot of people have had. Because of the disruption in everybody's lives of I suppose focusing on you know, time time to read.
1: I'm kind of surprised that I just haven't read for the last five months. I mean I've got I have got two very small children but I've managed to make time for reading before lockdown. But no, just I think apart from apart from just being completely exhausted by trying to work and look after two little children who need you all the time, you know, and just it's just been the four of us in the house. I'm, I'm not really kind of playing this as a sob story because everybody is in the same position. I've been kind of, I've been feeling a lot of anxiety. I've had to come back onto Twitter um, to promote my book and I think probably that's got a bit to do with it. I hate Twitter. I think it's such a mean place but it feels like it's essential to be, it, you know, throughout the pandemic it felt essential to be in touch with what was going on and what was going on was changing, you know, sometimes hourly. And that suits a kind of a, a Twitter scroll down. There's another burst, another burst, and another burst of information coming. And I just feel like it kind of fragmented my brain away from reading. So I've, I've tried, I've got three books on the go that seem absolutely wonderful. I'm just, I'm really hoping for a bit more time. We're slowly getting back to normal just now. Childcare starts again this week. So yeah, I'm just hoping for a wee bit more time there to kind of make headspace and just kind of... Do that the, the first day that my mum was able to come through and look after our wee boys for a few hours, I just lay on the sofa and I read Shaggy most I, I read about half of Shaggy Bean, which is the new. It's by Douglas Stewart, and it, it came out I think the same week as my book at the end of July, and it's on the the Booker long list as well. And um, it's have you, you heard of that one?
0: It's on again. It's on my list of books to read because I'm I'm going to be interviewing Douglas next month for the podcast. Mm-hmm. So. Mm-hmm. And again, I've seen so much positive feedback on the book. I'm I'm really excited about reading that.
1: It's great. Um, that's the one I think I'm gonna kind of push most quickly forward with when I get reading time back again. But it's yeah, it's just really kind of wonderfully done depiction of again. I'm I'm quite interested in reading kind of impoverished Scottish childhood stories. Um, I guess, but I I don't know. Um, I think it kind of comes back to where I was. Um. When I was reading the, all these books that I read when I was a teenager, the books that I was reading when I was kind of formative, sort of becoming an adult reader, stopping being a teenage reader, stopping reading Sweet Valley High and Poy to Horror. Like I said, it kind of coincided with this big boom in Scottish fiction and Scottish working class fiction as well. And that contemporary, very contemporary set, and that's what seems to, that seems to be the stuff that um, that chimes most with me. And so Shaggy Bean is ticking all my boxes there anyway, but it's just this beautiful story of family love and i'm feeling it quite strongly as, as a mother of a wee boy two wee boys as well which is you know there's yeah i like a bit with a lot of empathy
0: i had first kind i heard rumblings of that book because i think it came out in america he's obviously based in new york it came out in america first and i think it was in the new york times bestsellers list and when i read it and i thought you know it's interesting because it's very much steeped in, in working class but yeah. the fact is, it's transferred across the United States and it's, a, it's obviously a really good storyteller but it just shows you that those good stories are universal I suppose.
1: Yeah absolutely it's not just not just Scottish um, yeah not just of Scottish interest it's a wonderful thing that book um, I just I want a bit more space to just really have the time to think my way through it.
0: <laughs> yeah I mean is that a challenge obviously again as a reader when you've got young kids you know I've been there myself and my kids were we but also as a writer as well, because it's such a, it's trying to get that, I suppose it's that kind of work-life balance, because when they're that age, the demands, and especially during a lockdown, yeah. are absolutely constant.
1: Yeah, it really it really is. It's, um, yeah, it's been tiring. But I did just, um, I just got, um, I had a commission for a short story that I've just finished a week late. Uh, I never usually miss a deadline because of being a journalist, so I'm, I'm kind of feeling the shame about that one. <laughs> um, the, It's for a collection called Scotland After the Virus. Um, and I found it quite difficult to, to get into, <laughs> to kind of project forward like what Scotland after the virus might conceivably look like. But I also found it incredibly difficult to write about anything sort of large. So I kind of ended up using that sort of what I was talking about, that idea of Twitter, just those tiny wee bits of information coming through to sort of do quite a, experimental story for me I mean my, my two books have been quite not experimental because it jumps back and forth between media but I don't usually muck around with the text on the page but I've been doing that just to try and get across how it feels it's, it's been a strange strange time for everybody really hasn't it? In
0: terms of your own writing you know once the obviously the book comes out you, you touched on the fact that there's a lot of publicity that you have to do around that and whether that's social media whether it's interviews do you then are you able to then take a, a step back or are you are you then thinking about what you want to do next in terms of a, a novel?
1: Yeah, yeah. I did I did have an idea for a novel, but it was kind of a sort of apocalyptic one. Um, so <laughs> I might just I might just hold my war on that for a wee bit and see. I turned the first bit of it into a, a short story for Radio 4 right at the beginning of the lockdown before I was completely exhausted and unable to create full sentences. Um, but yeah, it's um, yeah, I, I I do want to, I've got an idea for something but it's not as formed as I would like it to be I'm looking for I did a lot of the kind of mental work for Scabby Queen just um when my my eldest son was a baby I used to just put him in the sling we live out in the in Renfrewshire and I used to just put him in the sling and walk in the woods for hours and hours and hours thinking and making notes on the phone while he was sleeping and I'm looking forward to being able to get back to the woods again and just have a wee bit of because yeah you can't really take toddlers to the woods and not kind of be the lookout for bridges to fall into and nettles and and, you know mud and that sort of thing i do take them to the woods all the time but it's not the best for (laughs) inspiration so yeah i'm looking forward to just getting out of the house and walking for a long time and seeing what all falls into place and if i have a little bit of time it's, it's about have to kind of create paid paid spaces so i have to take on some paid work in order to create some space for writing
0: and in terms of, of Scabby Queen, we said right at the very start about how the reaction to it, how positive. And is it just a case of then hoping that, you know, as many people as possible read it? Or, it, you know, you just want that the positive reaction to it just to continue. And...
1: People people seem to like this book, though. So, um, I'm really glad because I like it. My first book, I kind of, gone off a wee bit but this one I finished it two years ago it actually took quite a long time to come through the publication process yeah I I still love it just as much and I feel I don't know maybe I'll never write anything again I'm quite happy to just leave it there with that one just because I'm pretty proud of that one so the fact that people are liking it and they're buying it for when when people like a book they buy it for other people don't they or they they recommend it to other people that's that's kind of where that's the best way in
0: yeah and, and, and it's good as well that you you managed to beat that rush of 600 novels or
1: yeah <laughs> down the tracks oh man I, I mean i feel i feel happy for myself but i'm still just absolutely horrified for those authors so
0: well listen i i hope it, i certainly hope it's not the last thing that you write in terms of novels because uh <laughs> i'm sure everybody who's reading it has, or has read it will already be looking forward to what's next for you
1: thank you thanks for letting me Spraff away, I'm so sorry Okay, <laughs> I'm so tired
0: you will be relieved to know we've come to the end of the podcast If anybody wants to to just check out Kirsten's book choices go to my website com. Every guest has their own page and I just list all the, the book choices Kirsten, thanks for taking the time to talk to me on the podcast and I've really enjoyed the book chat with
1: you Oh, thank you, thank you for having me
0: Thanks for listening to the Read All About It podcast and I'd love to hear what you thought about it. You can get in touch via Twitter at ReadAllAbout20, on Instagram at ReadAllAboutItPodcast or you can send an email to ReadAllAboutIt at paulcuddehy.com. If you've enjoyed the podcast, subscribe, leave a review and spread the word. If you haven't enjoyed it, say nothing to anybody. But I do hope you can join me, Paul Cuddehy, next time on the Read All About It podcast. And in the meantime, keep reading.